today we have Ryan Dalkey sharing the word with us. Would you welcome Ryan to the front this morning? Ryan is a longtime member of the church and a good friend, and from time to time he shares the message with us. And uh, many of you have, have gotten to hear from him at, at men's rallies and things like that in years gone by, but you're in for a treat today. So thanks, Ryan. Appreciate thanks, it, man. Thanks, JR. <clears throat> good morning. How are we this morning? How are we this morning? There we go. I guess good. I didn't hear one bad, so that's good. All right. Let's get started, shall we? So, over the last few weeks, uh, JR has been sharing with us a series on resting in God, uh, a Sabbath, so to speak. Uh, but before we get going, I'm uh, going to share something with you. So, for years, my one of my roles at my job where I work is public speaking. It is presenting contentious highway projects to people, which is fun. That's great. Um, it actually is quite rewarding. Uh, but when I speak like that, when I when I was doing that for years, I had a very high confidence uh, presenting to people, standing up and talking to people, and. I realized that one of the reasons, well, I didn't realize, I came to understand the reason that I was confident in that those presentations is I was the unquestionable subject matter expert in the room. Uh, I had lived that project design and everything. <clears throat> I knew everything there was to know about that. So it gave me a great deal of confidence knowing so much about the subject matter expert or subject matter and knowing that everyone in the room was kind of hearing it for the first time. So I was a subject matter expert and that is clearly unequivocally not the case when I speak here. Um, so bear with me uh, while I am working my way through public speaking in this manner. So I came up with this solution to help me in this regard. So I am going to speak today, not to you, but to the one person in this room that I know without a doubt is less of a subject matter expert than me. Me. The me from two weeks ago. So, I am going to be speaking today to Mr. Old Ryan from two weeks ago throughout this message. So welcome to my prop and my strategy for bearing through public speaking. Okay, and then here's the cool thing. I get to really put into practice today many of the things that JR has been sharing with us over the past few weeks. Resting in God's omnipotence, his peace, getting rid of anxiety, taking thoughts captive. So this is me Taking thoughts captive, away with you anxiousness, I am speaking boldly this morning. Does that sound good? Yeah! Alright, on to the topic at hand. If you would, please turn your Bibles uh, with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're going to park there today uh, on this story. <clears throat> to give you a roadmap of where I'm going to go today, uh, and what we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about 
The History of the Sabbath, my soon-to-be-copyrighted book, Observing the Sabbath for Dummies, How and more importantly, why not to go too far with rules regarding the Sabbath. And lastly, our assignments for the week. So how would you define, how do we define resting in God? How do we define a Sabbath? JR has been talking about that uh, in this series. Stopping to take a time out. He's talked about taking your thoughts captive like I'm doing today. One of the messages he talked about was how God works how many things for the good? All things. Good. All things. And the peace that comes with that when we allow ourselves to rest in the reassurance that God will work all things for good. So what does the Sabbath look like for us today? Right here, 2021. Does it have to be a full day every seven days? Can it be a year off every seven years? How about an afternoon every three days? Should it be a few months every once in a while when you really need it? How are we going to obey God? What does the Sabbath look like today? It is the fourth commandment, after all. So I want to be obedient to God and do what I'm supposed to do. So how do we define that? Is there a user manual, so to speak? Those are all such good questions, Mr. Old Ryan. Thank you for asking them. So, let's take a look. I'm actually going to have you, instead of Luke chapter 6, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. So, I know I told you to go to Luke 6, but we are going to go there. But first... Scroll on over to Exodus chapter 20. This is an exercise in navigating your Bible. I happen to have these nice handy blue notes uh, that make it really good for going to all the passages that we're going to be talking about today. Too bad uh, I didn't share that with anybody. Anyway, I guess if you have a phone or a Bible app, scrolling back and forth is really easy, so whatever. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Specifically, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do n- not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right, so now let's flip back a few pages to chapter 16. Uh, Exodus 16. But before we go there, let's set some context. So this passage is about the Israelites, about a moment in time when the Israelites are in the desert. So this Israelite people have just been released from generations of slavery in Egypt. Generations. This is the first time in hundreds of years that they have actually had the physical ability to stop and rest, to take a day off. The Bible tells us that the Israelite people in in Egypt were under brutal slavery. They were specifically worked ruthlessly 
They were whipped and beaten. They they were on the job, so to speak, seven days a week, 365 days a year, no breaks, and I highly doubt it was only eight, eight hours a day. This was severely bitter and hard labor for generations. The people that were in the desert right now, they have never known anything different. Constant, constant, constant labor. The first time they've actually had the ability to take a rest. I hardly imagine the slave drivers that were whipping them bitterly gave them any weekends off, right? So specifically, let's fast forward to a mere month and a half after they leave Egypt. After they're released from slavery. A month and a half. So how does a group that size, uh, over a million people, feed themselves? They've been wandering around in the desert. They have no home. Yeah, they have their flocks. How do they feed themselves? A million plus people. By ordering Jimmy John's and relying on freaky fast delivery, right? Okay, seriously, how do they do that? How do you, how do you feed that many people? You can't just eat all your flocks, right? You can't grow crops when you're constantly wandering around. How long would it take you to eat all your flocks? All the sheep and everything? Maybe like a month and a half, right? So, God shows up. He miraculously provides this thing called manna. So some of you know, many of you know this story. This manna shows up on the desert floor and every single morning. Shows up on the desert floor, it's these whitish flakes, and you go out and you harvest it all up. And this isn't like one flake that's this big, right? It is like almost like a dew settled on the, on the desert floor. So they go out and they harvest this and they bake it into bread and boil it into soups and so on and so forth. If they try to keep any extra for the next day, it rots, stinks, and gets maggots in it. So every single day they have to do this. Go out, harvest all these tiny flakes, bake it into bread, boil it, and repeat the next day. It's a fair bit of work, right, for every single day just to feed yourself? So, with that context, let's read. Let's see, chapter thirty, or sorry, sixteen, verse twenty-three. So he said to them, Moses said to them, "This is what the Lord commanded: Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left, and keep it until morning." So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. So there's a lot of theological debate around this as to whether or not this is the actual first moment in time that God gives uh, practical, tangible instructions on observe how to observe a sabbath on observing the sabbath i know yes it's in genesis in creation god takes and uh, the seventh day off and blesses it as holy the theological debate is is this the actual first time that he conveys that to his people 
it's really neither here nor there in my estimation. Uh, there's nothing found in Scripture until this point, but it's that's really beside the point. Whatever the timing is, God sets aside, and he, at this point right here, tells his people, you set it aside to um, as a Sabbath day of rest. So why does he do this? Why does he set this aside for his people? Let's go over to Exodus 31. Specifically, verses 12 to 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath, because it is, is, is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on that Sabbath day must be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, and on the seventh day... He abstained from work and rested. What do we learn here about the purpose of the Sabbath? <clears throat> rest. Rest for your body, mind, and soul, right? But there's also another purpose found in there. Worshiping God. The Sabbath is set aside as a reminder to all. It's a reminder of a, it's a sign between us and God. So, Practically speaking, why do we fly our American flag at half-staff on Memorial Day, September 11th, those kinds of things? It's a reminder, right? It's a reminder of the fallen, our fallen military. It's a reminder of those that were impacted and lost their lives on September 11th, right? It's, we do that as a reminder, when we don't regularly remind ourselves of something like that, life has a way of just kind of making our thoughts and memories of that subject just slowly fade away, doesn't it? We need to have a regular reminder. In a similar way, observing the Sabbath is the same thing. It's a regular, repeated reminder of the greatness of God and all that He has done from the beginning of time to this moment right here. And that he's going to do from this moment all the way to the end of time. Without a regularly scheduled time to observe and remember our relationship and the greatness of God, and I might add, the smugness of our human greatness getting in the way, it can all allow us to slowly drift away from God. By setting aside a time to regularly remember God, it keeps us focused on Him. It's one of the reasons that a regular attendance at a church like this is so important. It gives us that regular reminder. And it's during this Sabbath time that we set aside that we worship Him. The sole intent of a Sabbath is not to kick back and lay around in a hammock. It's a benefit, no doubt. But it's not to just laze around, watch movies, um, hang out, and rest our poor aching physical bodies. That is a benefit, but it's not just about that. It's not just about us. 
It's not just about us. One more time. It's not just about us. But let me say this. Even when God gives us instructions on an action that is about other people or about Him, He uses that to bless us beyond measure. To bless us more than we, we would get if we ever actually did it for us. If we did do it just for us. He rewards our unselfish behavior with blessing. That is the amazing power of our God. So rabbit trail. If you want some homework for the week. So Isaiah chapter 58 talks about fasting. One of the primary purposes of fasting is to focus prayer and spend time with God. But did you know that we're actually given instructions, tangible instructions in Isaiah 58 to use our fasting to help other people? We are supposed to take the food that we were going to consume or the drink that we were going to consume during that fasting time. Take that stuff that you were going to take or eat and give it to the poor. Give it to those that are hungry. It actually, it's tangible instructions in there. Take your food, the food that you're going to eat while fasting and give it to the poor. I know that's a rabbit trail, but if you want some homework for the week, look that up. It's really actually really kind of cool. God, how God intricately weaves the benefit of other people uh, into something that was really primarily focused on us and him. So anyway, back to this main trail. Just like fasting, Sabbath has a reason that it's not just about us. It's also about worshiping God. He tells us to take time that we would otherwise be toiling about in our busy lives, doing work and making money, to find personal rest and worship our Creator and Father. These are fantastic reasons to observe the Sabbath, right? Looking back to Exodus 31, there's a really good reason to observe it as well. A punishment. Death. Okay. Death. Right. Death. <laughs> Dang, that is heavy, right? God takes this very seriously. So if we have this, these two fantastic reasons to, to motivations and positives to celebrate the Sabbath, and we have this one really good reason to make sure we do it, like we don't want to die, uh, why don't we do it more? Why don't we observe or put into practical practice a Sabbath day of rest more popularly? It's one of the Ten Commandments. And look, most messages that you hear in church are founded on the other nine commandments. No one debates the merits of those, right? No one. We have worldly laws that center and focus on some of those other nine, ten commandments. So why aren't we celebrating? Why aren't we putting into practical observation this fourth commandment? Well, there are two. Like I said, there's two clear motivations. One is punishment and the other is reward. But why aren't we doing this? Before we go down the rail or the path too far of another obligation, this is not another obligation. This is this taking a Sabbath day of rest is not 
about another obligation of got to read my 16 chapters of Leviticus. No, this is a, a time set aside for you. It's about finding unexplainable rest and restoration that only comes through spending time with God, your creator. So, one of the reasons that we don't do this, J.R. has been touching on in his messages, messages, busyness. We're so dang busy that it gets in our way. What's another reason? Rules. Rules. We have put so many rules around Sabbath, starting clear back in the, around Jesus' time. We put so many rules around the Sabbath that I think people even... All those rules have placed a roadblock in us celebrating and observing a Sabbath today. Up to this point, the rules were simple. Up to this point in time, right here, back in Exodus 16. Work for six days, rest on the seventh, and worship your God. Pretty simple rules. But man being man, we created all these little sub-rules around it, right? I can picture it now. Probably all... Some poor shepherd boy was tending to his flocks, and it's on the Sabbath, so he's just kind of not doing much. He's just kicking back and letting his sheep do their whatever sheep do. And he sees one of them that has fallen in this pit. And he's like, oh, dang. i got, I got to rescue him. And the sheep is like bounding about. Bah, bah. No, actually, it can't be bounding about because it's in a pit. But you get the point. It's flailing its arms or legs. It doesn't have arms. I did not practice this part. It's, it has legs, right? And it's flailing about and bah! And the shepherd, poor shepherd, he loves this sheep. And he's like, i got to rescue the sheep. But I'm a shepherd, and that's my job. I can't rescue the sheep on the Sabbath because I don't want to be executed. I, I got to save him. Okay, I can't do it. Yes, I, I got to. No, I can't. Yes, no. So he says, "Okay, I'm I'm going to go talk to my council. I'm going to talk to the religious leader." And so he goes to the religious leader, chugs over there, and says, "What do I do? It's Sabbath. I can't rescue my poor sheep." And and the religious leader says, "You know what? We need to make a law about this, a rule." That way, I don't have to ever get asked this question again, and everyone will know what to do. So it gets put into some religious rules and regulations code, chapter 14, section 1732, or whatever it is, right? They put it right into law. Done. So my boss has this saying at work, when we have to comply with these... Silly, I'll just use that word, silly regulations that we have to deal with. He says, Ryan, you know what? Most laws have somebody's name attached to it. I'm like, you're so right. Lawmakers have put so many regulations in place because somebody did something one time that they want to prevent anyone from ever doing ever again, ever, period. So a law goes into place. Shame on you, punish everybody. I digress. Sorry. Point being, man's desire to make sure that they don't break the rules often outweighs our desire to understand the heart of God. 
Lest I go too far, I must look in the mirror. Don't go too far with rules. This is me talking to Mr. Old Ryan and current Ryan. Going back to the Pharisees, the example that um, I was giving in the religious leaders, uh, the example in with the sheep in the pit, these things like this repeat themselves over and over and over. It's not just a shepherd and a sheep, other things happen. So rules upon rules upon rules are added and added and added into the code of religious regulations. And they all roll right back to chapter 31 for punishment. Death. Now the role is of these local religious leaders, in my example, is the Pharisees, right? This group is so wrapped around the axle that they have universally neglected the heart of God to establish the rules of man. It was the Pharisees with which Jesus had so much conflict throughout his life and ministry. Okay, so let's bring in the Pharisees to this equation in Luke chapter 6. I think I asked you to go there like 15, 20 minutes ago. Let's do it again. Let's go there now. Chapter 6, Luke. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. This is Jesus going into the synagogue and teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or evil, to save a life or destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss one another with one another what they might do to Jesus. <clears throat> so as you read this story, remember back in Exodus 31 again, the punishment for working on the Sabbath is death. And the Pharisees had set up the rules of what define work. There's actually an example of the death penalty regarding the Sabbath back in Numbers. <clears throat> and it's a story of a guy that was gathering wood on the Sabbath. He gets observed doing this, and he's stoned to death by the people. God takes this extremely seriously. This is not a flippant command. But here's the deal with the wood gatherer story. We aren't given the situation. We're not given the background. We don't know the man's motives, nor the context of him getting that wood, gathering that wood. However, what we do know is he was brought forward to the Lord for determination of punishment. And God determined that the desecration was severe enough to call for the death penalty. Some random Israelite or teacher of the law didn't observe him and then stone him then and there. They didn't take that power. He was brought forward to God to determine. That's the difference between that wood gatherer story and this story. The Pharisees had set so many rules in place. They had empowered themselves so much they had replaced 
bringing penalty or bringing the situation to God and, and determining punishment. They had determined that any work whatsoever, beneficial or not, was prohibited on the Sabbath. Any good at all. Any good at all. Does that sound anything whatsoever like our God? No. And Jesus confirms that answer by taking action. Okay, so I've read this story several times in my life, and it wasn't until this last week, preparing for this message, that I really was digging into this, and by the end, I was like, yeah! I was like seriously jacked up, right? This is the brash, in-your-face way that Jesus handles this is awesome. So let's look at it a little bit. So, first, uh, let me find my spot here. Jesus knows, actually, yes. So let's go back to chapter, to verse 8, Carter. Um, so, verse 8, Jesus knew what they were thinking. So the version of the story, this story in Matthew says that after these events unfold, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. He knew full well that they were sitting in their seats already plotting on a way that they could trap him and kill him, using the Sabbath as the reason. He knew the Pharisees, Jesus knew the Pharisees' penalty for their definition of work on the Sabbath was death. But he also knew the Father's rules for Sabbath. How does he respond? He doesn't put off the healing for later. He doesn't explain his actions nicely and ask for permission. He doesn't simply reach to the man quietly and heal him. He tells the man, get up and stand in front of everyone. This is huge. He's actually making a spectacle of this. So everyone in the room knows and sees Jesus pointing at the Pharisees saying, this is what I think of your rules. He's making a spectacle of this. And he asks the questions looking right at the Pharisees. I ask you, which is lawful? To save a life or to kill one? And that one, that question really pokes at the Pharisees because he knows in their head, they're sitting there already thinking, I'm gonna, I'm figuring out a way to kill this dude today because he's working. I'm gonna see if he heals this guy. I'm gonna, we're gonna kill him. They're plotting a way to kill Jesus on the Sabbath. How about the world? They're plotting how to kill somebody on the Sabbath. And I might add, the Pharisees are actually working. It's their job to observe and implement rules and pass judgment to some degree. That's their job. And they're doing it on the Sabbath. Come on! And they're punishing the guy. How is that for hypocrisy? It's astounding to me. Anyway, Jesus is standing there. He asks this question that pokes at the Pharisees, and then he just points over to this man. I, I still picture him. He's just zeroed in right on the Pharisees. And he looks over and he says, stretch out your hand. And the guy, bam, stretches out his hand, healed. That is in your face, right? That is like pre-boxing match, stare down, 
right to the Pharisees, eyebrows raised, going, hmm, yeah, what are you going to do now? I love this thing. There is, okay, there is absolutely zero theological support for how I think that went down in my head. <laughs> but that is, that's just cool. That's what I think happened. And, and hey, it could have. So, all that said, after Jesus clearly wipes out the artificial rules that the Pharisees put around the Sabbath, why did they make him in the first place? Why do we make this? Why do, why do we set rules around so many things? Something I've come to realize time and time again is I am more like the Pharisees than I care to admit. I put rules and checkboxes and things to accomplish around so many things. I even put them around things like studying God's Word, reading 15 minutes. I put checkboxes around things. This is another one of those look-in-the-mirror moments. This is why I'm speaking today to Mr. Old Ryan and no one else in this room. Why are we like that? Why am I like that? Because rules are comfortable. Check boxes are, checklists are comfortable. They're easy to measure. And they're rewarding. Man, it feels good to mark off. Mow the lawn. Read 15 minutes in the morning before work. Oh, it feels good. And it feels good that I'm living up to God's expectation. The problem with rules, they're mindless. They take away all the personal engagement all the relationship, and all the effort out of this. The problem is, when we do that, when we make checklists and rules like that, we turn this, the living Word of God, with a capital W, to just words of God, with a small w. Just words. I, for one, I need to focus way more on the capital W version. Really busy world. Our life today has, is making it increasingly difficult to carve time out to spend with God, to carve time out to rest. Us... <clears throat> Sorry, when we commit like that, when we commit too many boundaries, too many rules, we just get overwhelmed, don't we? Yeah, but I'd love to take a day of rest, but I still got to get the kids to gymnastics. I still have to mow the lawn. I still have to, I still have to cook dinner and wash the dishes afterwards, right? I have, maybe you have a shift at work that you have to have a shift every Saturday or every other Saturday or something to that effect. I can't hardly tell my work I can't do that. Us people, me, we're so wired and trained to do everything 100% right that when we know we can't do it 100% right, we just and say the heck with it. I'm not even going to try. Don't let that be the case for the Sabbath redefine what's 100% right. Help, have God help you determine that. When we're unsure of what to do, let's follow the 
way that Moses and the Israelites taught us 3,000 years ago. Turn to God for guidance. And when he answers, and he will, follow through and reap the rewards. Remember, the Sabbath was made for us, for man. Not God. The Sabbath is made for us. Keeping a period of rest takes discipline. It does. It's an intentional effort to deny ourselves of what we think needs to be done that day. This book by Mark Buchanan that J.R. has been mentioning called The Rest of God says we stand ourselves down in keeping a Sabbath. We prioritize obedience to God over our own self-interest because he knows better than we do. It's hard for me, sometimes impossible, to even accept sometimes that God actually does know what's better for me than I do. Here's the thing, though. When we deny ourselves and our own self-interest to obey the heart of God, He piles on the rewards. He piles them on. Gifts is a great example of this. When you give a gift to somebody or sponsor a child in need, the amount of joy that it can bring you is immense. Oftentimes more than the joy that it brings the person that got the gift. The Sabbath is very similar. Denying ourselves, our desire, our need to accomplish tasks and check things off and get things done and make money, and moving more to a focus on Him brings immense joy. Denying ourselves brings joy. How weird is that? This concept, this message, is as applicable to Mr. Old Ryan, to me, than it is for anyone. Look, when I started this message a week and a half ago or so, I was exhausted. It has been a just a jam-packed number of months. Work is crazy. Every weekend we're either traveling, doing something, some planned activity. I'm reading the news and that's emotionally just draining me. I was exhausted. And then I sit down to work on a message regarding the Sabbath and I struggled. And it wasn't until I absolutely carved out some time and says, no, I drew the line, no more news, no nothing. And I just became restored. And then I went to church, went home, had a leisurely lunch, sat down and spent four or five hours just with God. And I felt more invigorated, more restored physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually at that moment than I have in months. Months. I will tell you probably since the, that period of time that we all, that the state shut down for COVID and we were all just holed up at home. That was the first time I had been that restored. I am talking to myself every bit as much as I'm talking to you. So what does a Sabbath look like for you? What could it look like for you? I don't know. I don't know if it's one afternoon every three days. I don't know if it's all day Saturday. I don't know if it's all day Sunday or Friday or Monday. I don't know if it's a week off every four months. That's not for me to decide. Maybe it's no screen time once a week. I don't know. 
But as you turn to God and ask him for guidance in that, ask him for your guidance. Forget what works for JR or for me. Make it about you. What does the Sabbath look like for you? So we're on to our assignments for the week. The fulfillment and restoration, restoration that God gives you when observing a Sabbath is off the freaking charts. Trust that God knows what he's doing. So, assignments for the week. Number one, stop. Give yourself time to rest. And two, act while you're stopping and pray for guidance. Ask God to pour into you and say, God, what what does the Sabbath look like for me? How do you want a Sabbath to look like for me? And then be bold. God, move in this situation. Arrange my schedule so I can take a Sabbath. God, I give my schedule to you. That you fix it. That you make it possible. With God... All things are possible. Do you think changing your schedule or rearranging a schedule is not outside or is not inside his power? Heck yeah. I think the answer is unequivocally yes. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the word that you poured into me during this time, Lord, uh, the changes that you're making in my life and that Lord, I pray that 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 your word for me also has an impact on those that hear it, Lord. Uh, that we're moved to action, Lord, and you make it happen. Lord, you put those things into action. Thank you for all that you give us. In your son's name, amen.